0: G'day everyone. I'm going to pray for us before we get this passage together, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, sometimes Your Word challenges us uh, and in particular challenges the way we think on things and challenges us to be different to the world around us and uh, we pray that tonight as we listen to Your Word, we will treat it as Your Word and we will let it challenge us and we will give it place of honour it deserves and we'll change our minds to be in line with it rather than the other way around and we pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. For the last uh, two weeks we've been focused on this incredible reality in the book of Colossians of what happens to you when you became a Christian Uh, and so, at the moment you trusted in Jesus, the Bible tells us that you became a new person, the person you used to be ceased to exist Uh, They died with Jesus and now you are raised with Christ. So, now you are a new person in Jesus. And we've seen how, if that's true, uh, we have to put to death the things that are are a part of our old sinful nature. So, remember a couple of weeks ago, we saw we have to put to death sexual immorality, we have to put to death greed, we have to put to death all these things. And, And the other image it had was you had to take off your old self and put on a new self, take off Anger, because that's part of the old you. Take off malice, because that's part of the old you. Take off slander and gossip, because that's part of the old you. And instead, put on the things that please Jesus. So, put on compassion, put on kindness, put on patience, and especially put on those things that help us love and serve God's people, the church. So, the big one we saw last week is put on forgiveness. Put on thankfulness. They are the things we want to be growing and developing in ourselves and in one another. And that change, that new person you've become through faith in Jesus, it must impact every aspect of your life. Uh, It's not like you sort of add being a Christian on to everything you used to have, that, that was part of the old you and now there's just this new little extra bit of you that makes you a little bit better or something like that. No, 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 you don't just add it on being a Christian must define and shape every decision you make. Everything you do, everything you say, everything you think, is now defined by the fact that I am a follower of Jesus, I am a new person in Him. And so, we got to that sort of great summary at the end of last week's passage, verse 17, and it was so good, I made us read it again at the start of this week's passage. Uh, So, look at verse 17 with me and it says, and whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So, if you are a Christian, there is no part of your life that is not impacted by the Gospel. The big things and the little things, they are all impacted by the Gospel. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. That is, do everything in a way that honours Christ. Do everything in a way that brings Jesus the glory. It's actually a really good sort of diagnostic question to ask, before you do anything, before you say anything, ask, am I happy that people will see me doing this thing in the name of Jesus? Is, is this thing I'm about to do, is it going to honour the name of Jesus, people know I'm a Christian, or is it going to dishonour the name of Jesus? And if it's going to dishonour the name of Jesus, well, why would I do it? Whereas, if it's going to honour Him, well, then I should do it. Whatever you do, do it to honour Christ. And a big part of our everything... Is the way we relate to the people closest to us, our families. Uh, If you think about it, what more important part of everything is there? What, What group of people do you spend more time with in your life than the relationships of a parent and a child and a husband and a wife? If our faith doesn't impact on those relationships, then it's useless, it's irrelevant. Before we get into the detail of these verses, I want to make a couple of big picture points. So, come with me. We're looking now from uh, verse 18 on these verses about wives, husbands, children, and fathers. First point I want to make is some of the things God says here are really countercultural. I'm sure you realize that the moment the Bible was read. Uh, the Bible, though, has always been countercultural. In every culture it's ever been preached into, including the one right at the start, when they were talking to the Colossians, it has impacted and graded on our, on our culture, just in different ways, on different cultures, at different times. That's where we need to remember, we listen to God's Word, not to our culture. And if you take nothing else away, I'm not encouraging you to take nothing else away, by the way, but if you took nothing else away from this sermon, take that away, I will listen to God's Word, and I will put it above what my culture tells me and what my society tells me and what my friends tell me and what anyone else tells me. God's Word does not change, so we change our view, whether it's of marriage or, or, or family relationships or anything, we change our view to bring it into line with God's Word, we don't change God's Word to bring it into line with our culture. Second point I want to make is the fact that Paul deals with these issues reminds us that family relationships are broken by sin. Sometimes people can have an unrealistic view of marriage and of families and of parents and children and all those sorts of things, that somehow they should be the place where sin does not enter and then you live in the real world. See, people sort of seem to think, ah, I understand that sin impacts out there but it shouldn't impact in on my family but actually that is the place where it impacts the worst because that is where you have sinners together in close proximity where they can't put on a front and hide our selfishness and all the other things are a part of our sinfulness. The reality is sin impacts all relationships and sometimes it's actually at its worst within the family. I'm not meaning to be negative uh, but family, and I want to tell you, family relationships are a wonderful gift from God but we must not have this romantic view that somehow family should be easy and not impacted by sin. When I prepare a couple for marriage, I meet with them usually six times, six times before they get married, before we have the actual wedding service and uh, the first three, I take it as my job, is to smash their romance out of them. That's my job. My job for the first three, it usually takes that many, sometimes it takes six, sometimes it never will, (laughs) is to get their rose-coloured glasses and just sort of smash them against the wall and make them realise you're marrying a sinner and even more than that, a sinner is marrying you. You see, being a godly husband, a wife, a son, a daughter, a parent, that does not come naturally to us. We need God to help us do these roles in a way that honours Jesus. Third thing is, these verses here are really just the Apostles' briefest summary statements about what it is to be a Christian wife, husband, child and parent. I mean, he deals with marriage in two verses, My bookshelf has like a whole row of books on the question of marriage. You go to a Christian bookstore and you'll find books that thick on marriage, you know, and then you get to parenting, my gosh, (laughs) and none of them are, no. Here he deals with it in two verses, marriage in two verses, parenting in two verses. That tells you this is not everything God has to say on these topics. Uh, If you want a more full treatment of the question of wives and husbands from a Christian perspective, look at Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, that's where He expands it out more fully. But I think we can safely say here, He's giving us here the things we absolutely need to hear. These are the key points. He's not trying to deal with every nuance, He's not trying to deal with every exception that you can come up with, so please listen that way. Uh, He's trying to give us the basic picture of what a family should look like. This is the basic picture, because you need to think further if you're going to apply it into whatever situations you come across. Fourth point, What is the overarching theme of these verses about family, if you look at it? What is the point of these verses? I think it's this. It's that God wants our families to be ordered, not disordered. God wants our families to be ordered, not disordered, and that's because God is a God of order. Go back to chapter 2, verse 5, jump back to chapter 2, verse 5. Here He is commending this church in Colossians, he's telling them what a great job they're doing, and He says this, at verse 5, He says, "...for I may be absent in body, but I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see how well ordered you are, and the strength of your faith in Christ." See, actually, a massive part of living to please God is living our lives in the order that He wants them to be lived. Whether that's in the church, or in the family, or in the workplace, as we'll see later on, part of a godly church, or a godly family, or a godly worker, is following God's intended order. Our world tells us the opposite. Our world tells us the secret to happiness is total freedom. You you don't want to be in a relationship where someone tells you what to do, To be happy, I need to be totally free to make my own decisions, I need to be my own boss. God has a word for that way of living, do you know what the word is? It's called sin. Sin is saying, I want to live with me as the boss, I don't want God to be above me, to, to, to challenge me, to tell me what I need to do and because we are sinners, when we're all just left to be free, when there is disorder, we're left to be free to do whatever we want, what is the outcome? We hurt one another, Because, you see, if I just do what I want, and you just do what you want, what happens when what I want is the same as what you want? We fight about it. And because I'm bigger than you, about 99% of you, (laughs) I won't mention it, because I'm bigger than you, I win. And that's the way sin works. So, God says, no, 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 part of doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus is recognizing the good order that I have created in this world. But then God's saying to us, God's good order can be abused as well and it can be misused. People can lord it over other people. People can use their power for their own advantage to mistreat other people and so God's good order is good but it needs to be applied and lived out with love and with grace and with compassion and all those things we saw in last week's passage. And that's what the Bible's picture of family does, here and in other passages like Ephesians 5. It says, follow God's good order, but bring it together with grace and love as well. So, with all that in mind, let's look at wives and husbands. Come with me to verse 18. He says, wives, be submissive to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Now, straight away, anyone who lives in our modern world reacts against this, don't they? Up until 40 years ago or so, people would say the offensive things in the Bible were things like saying, you're a sinner and everyone deserves God's judgment and so now, people say, this is more offensive than that, tell me I'm going to hell all you like but don't tell me that a wife should submit to her husband. Our society hates this idea, it says, no, 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 we want equality and our society thinks, you can't be equal if you submit That's the way our society works. Our society says, no, 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 if I submit to someone else, they're better than me. That's what you're saying. So, our society has no time for submission because to submit is to be weak, to submit is to be inferior and to submit is to give up your freedom, to give up your independence. But as Christians, we know better than that. Because who is the great model of submission in the Bible? Jesus is the great model of submission. Even though Jesus is in very nature God, even though He is absolutely equal with His Father, God the Father and God the Son, both fully God, both have all the power and all the might in the world, but then Jesus voluntarily submits Himself to His Father. In the same way, the Bible is very clear that men and women are equal in every way someone misuses the Bible to say to, and says to you, men and women are not equal, tell them they don't understand the Scriptures. Just like God the Son and God the Father are equal, so are men and women. We are equal in terms of our standing before God. We're, we're equal in terms of our value to God. We're equal in terms of our sinfulness, too. Men and women are equally sinful. We're equal in terms of our salvation, most importantly. But God has ordered the family and the church in this way. He calls on wives to voluntarily submit to their husband's responsibility for the family. And when we see Jesus as our model, we see that submission does not mean being a doormat. Whatever you would call Jesus, it's not that. It means, for a wife, playing her role, adding her opinion, but ultimately allowing the husband to take responsibility for the family because he is the one who is going to be answerable to God for his family. By the way, do you notice there that there is no call on husbands to make your wives submit? Do you notice that? So, it says, wives, submit to your husbands, but then for the husbands, it doesn't say, and husbands, make your wives submit to you. It says, husbands, love your wives. You see, there is no call on husbands to lord it over their wives, that is not Christian. And the wife's submission is not without limit, it's as is fitting in the Lord. Sadly, some supposedly Christian men have used the good order of God's relationships as an excuse for abuse, physical or verbal or emotional, that is not Christian and men who act like that need to read the next verse and realize that they need to repent. And sometimes, it's even right to help a wife separate from her husband, to escape that sort of abuse, to say to her, it's time to get away from that, where the husband is misusing his power. Now, there are extremes and there are exceptions that we need to deal with in this fallen world, but they don't change God's general plan. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. But, of course, God's good order makes sense when you look at the call on husbands. You see, the submission that is called on, the voluntary submission of a wife to a husband, is not the voluntary submission to a tyrant, it's the voluntary submission to, look at verse 19, husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter towards them. So, the opposite side of the coin to submission is not authority and harshness, it's love, self-sacrificial, self-sacrificing love. In Ephesians, Paul spells out that husbands are to love their wives like Christ loved the church, by giving up their lives for them. That is the call on husbands, to serve their wives, to put their wives' needs above their own. And that call to not be bitter there, or in other translations, not be harsh, is so important. It's talking about what I was talking about before. You see, God knows that sinful people will misuse His good order. So, He says, don't do that. Do not be bitter. That is, don't resent your wife if she doesn't act how you think she must act, and and if she doesn't please you in every whatever. Don't follow the ways of the world and resort to lording it over your wife. Don't misuse your often greater physical strength to make your wife do what you want. The marks of a godly husband are not pride and arrogance and all the things too often our world associates with being a man. But are actually about being a sinful man. And the marks of the godly husband are the things we saw in last week's passage. The marks of a godly husband are compassion and kindness and gentleness and patience. And can I say, because I know, preaching to this congregation, the majority of people here are not married. Can I say, this shows you that if you are thinking of marrying someone, what you should look for in that person? Are they a person who I, if you're a woman, who I could submit to the loving leadership of, are they gentle, are they gracious, are they compassionate, or in fact, are they a tyrant? And if you're a man, is this a woman who is pleasing in this way? Rather than worrying so much like our world does of how does a person look, actually look to their character and think, is this a person who I could marry and fulfil God's plan for marriage? Now, how that basic model works in practice there is enormous freedom in that and how it works when both wife and husband fail because remember we're all sinners and we'll all fall short of this standard that is part of negotiating a marriage the book i recommend and i actually get everyone who gets married who i prepare for marriage to read is this book it's by christopher Ash. it's called married for god making your marriage the best it can be i put it there in your outline It is the book I get everyone, before they get married, or after they get married, to read. If you've been around our church for any length of time, I've recommended this book so many times, the only possible reason you can't have read it is you really don't like me at all. So, no, I'm only joking. (laughs) You just don't trust my recommendations. That is the book that I uh, recommend and I encourage you, that really works through what does submission and love, what does husband and wife, what does it look like in the realities of a marriage? But I'll close this part, by saying, the Christian view of marriage is not something we should be ashamed of. At our synod, a couple of years ago, here in Sydney, a lady got up and gave a passionate argument for why we should remove the word, submission, from Christian wedding vows. Thankfully, someone got up and said, it's not just in the wedding service, it's in the Bible. You you see, people say, oh, we've got to, our world hates this, we should be ashamed of it. And I've heard preachers get up, And they sort of apologize before they preach on this passage, they say, oh, you know, I wouldn't want to say this but the Bible says it so we've got to believe it. Don't, that person should never preach a sermon ever again because this is God's Word, this is God's wonderful truth, this is something we should delight in, not be ashamed of, it is God's good gift to us and God's way is better. Sadly, sometimes even Christian marriages don't work but the reality is, statistically speaking, God's way is best. And actually, the most wonderful marriages are where a marriage reflects, even imperfectly, that love of Christ and that voluntary, gentle submission. That is actually the most God-honouring and wonderful marriage. See, our world only has two other options. The majority of societies and the majority of of people throughout time, and even in the world today, have the tyrant model, where the husband lords it over his wife, and treats his wife like his possession. That is actually the majority of our world, and the majority of cultures, and the majority of time throughout history. And the West has reacted against that, and said, what we need is a marriage where, where there's no order, and where no one ever submits themselves to the other, because we don't want to lose our independence. A marriage cannot work, where people aren't willing to lose their independence the Christian way is not something to be ashamed of, it is something to delight in, it is the best model and the statistics bear that out. But, of course, the other relationship we all have and the other key building block of society is the relationship of a child to a parent. So, not everyone will marry, everyone has been or will be a child. Well, you won't, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> so, we go there next, in verse, it's been a long day. <laughs> go to verse 20, it says... And for some of you, I promised your parents I would preach on this this morning. Uh, it says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. I might just sit down there. Uh, <laughs> it's simple, isn't it? Obey and everything. There is order in the family. Children are not peers with their parents. God is not into parenting. Have you heard that word? It, it, God... God does not respect the father who thinks, I'll be like my son, my child, so that he'll get along with me and all that sort of thing. He says, no, you're not a child, you're an adult. Act like an adult. God has set up the world for parents to provide discipline and order for their children because that is what is best for them. That's part of loving them and children are called on to submit to that order and discipline. Now, we immediately jump to the what ifs my own, two of my own children are here tonight, I'm not going to look at them now but we we immediately jump to the what ifs, everything, you know, but what about when? And, and of course, if a parent calls on a child to sin, the child should say, I honour God before I honour my parents, I obey God before I obey my parents and if a parent abuses their position to hurt their child, then God would say, they have, they have given up their right to be obeyed and be a parent and of course, it changes over time When a child grows up and becomes an adult, it moves from obey to honour our parents. But this is the general rule, children obey your parents. And if you're a child, and can I say, if you live under your parents' roof, then the call is simple, please the Lord by the way you respond to your parents. Even if you think your parents have no idea, even if you think you think you know better than your parents, God's Word says to you, obey your parents. But parents are not to abuse their position either. It's amazing how children who rebel against their parents then resent their children rebelling against them when they're a bit older and have children. So, look at verse 21. It says, fathers, do not exasperate your children so they won't become discouraged. Now, it's interesting that he says fathers rather than parents, isn't it? Do you notice that? He's not saying, mothers, you do not need to hear this. I think he's making the point, fathers, you are the ones who are responsible. You are the ones who are answerable to God for your family. So, fathers, man up. Sadly, generally, right from the moment of Adam and Eve, men have outsourced the responsibility for parenting their children to their wives. That is, for some reason, that is almost the universal human condition. God says, don't do that. Fathers, you are the ones who are responsible for your children. You, you do it together as parents, but you are responsible. And I think he also speaks directly to fathers, because it is fathers who are the ones who have a tendency to be too harsh and to discourage their children. What does he mean by, do not exasperate your children? it means, don't treat them in such a way that you actually make it difficult for them to obey you. Don't treat them in such a way that actually, they have to work really hard to respect you. Don't treat them in such a way that they come to resent you and end up discouraged. Yes, discipline, but don't be a tyrant, is his point. Don't abuse your authority, don't be unfair and unloving. Fathers, we have a responsibility to nurture our children in life and in the Lord. Well, there is God's very brief summary of how to live in our family relationships to honour Jesus. Now, Paul turns to a different relationship, that of slaves and masters. And we think, oh, this one's more relevant to me, because that's a there's not many of us in a slave and master relationship. So, people generally think, wow, what a jump, he's gone from families to slaves, but that's because we don't understand the culture that the Bible was written to. In the ancient world, slaves were a part of most households. Slaves wasn't an uncommon thing. Many historians think 80% of the people in Rome were slaves or ex-slaves. That's a massive part of society. And the amazing thing about the church was, from the moment the church started meeting, from the moment Christians started gathering, when they met, slaves and masters were equals in the church. It was the one place in society where a slave might give the sermon and a master would listen. A slave might read the Bible and a master might listen. We have to understand how revolutionary that was in the ancient world. But lots of modern people read this and they say, well, why doesn't the Apostle say, release all your slaves? Why doesn't He start a a, a campaign to abolish slavery? Why does the Bible not condemn this outright, like we would want it to? Well, actually, there's some pretty easy answers to that. The, The first one is, the slavery of the Roman Empire was different to the slavery we think of. When we think of slavery, what do we think of? We think of North America, a couple of hundred years ago, don't we? And we think of people being put in chains in Africa, put in a ship, 50% of them dying on the way across the Atlantic and then they work until they die on cotton fields in America. Uh, The slavery of the Roman Empire was different to that, it wasn't a good thing but it wasn't the evil that that was, which by the way, it was Christians who led the way in abolishing that slavery. In Roman society, slaves had rights They were actually able to get out of slavery, if they worked for a period of time, they would be released. Most slaves were released by the time they were 30. Generally, they were either in slavery because they were prisoners of war or they were paying off a debt and that's how you did it. And many slaves, if they were released, would have had no way of actually living. And so, if the Apostle Paul, if the early Christians come along and said, release all the slaves, The whole society would have crashed to a halt and the slaves would have starved. That wasn't the way to work. Now, was slavery how God wants it to be? No. God condemns trading in slaves in the Bible and in time, as the Christian Gospel spread and became more influential, they changed the society. But, and this is really important, Paul was more interested in preaching the Gospel And then helping Christians live for Jesus, than He was in political action. If we have the opportunity to shape society in a better direction, then take the opportunity, that's great, but Jesus wants you to be more interested in shaping your own heart in His direction, before you dare to try and tell society what they should do. You see, the way Christians influence society, much more than by political action, is by preaching the gospel seeing people's hearts change and then seeing society change in that way. If I can be a bit polemical, I think far too many Christians in the modern world get on with causes and say, I support whatever the latest social action cause is, but then they do nothing themselves about it. The Apostle Paul would not be satisfied with that, Jesus would not be satisfied with that. He he would say, if you want to lobby your government about how they treat refugees, who is the last stranger you had in your house? Deal with your own heart, before you dare to speak to society about what society should do. And so here, Paul gives instructions to slaves and masters. He says, how do you live to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus? Now, our work situations are different to being a slave or a master, I don't care how bad your boss is, you're not a slave. Uh, but there are some principles in here that are relevant to all of us and I'm going to work, draw, draw out three of them. First one is, Christians should be known as hard workers because in the end, we work for the Lord. Look from verse 22. He says, slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched in order to please men, but work wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord. Now, as I say, we are not slaves, so praise God. Uh, and we have rights in our employment or as students, or whatever it is you do. You have rights, uh, and that 's great. but Christians should be known for their hard work. There is no worse witness to Christ in a workplace than if the person they know is a Christian is lazy, and if the person they know as a Christian is a slacker or just a bad worker or is always stealing things or whatever it is, even if your boss is not worth wor- watching. We work as if we're working for God, not for men. That's the first point. And by the way, that means we're honest too. We don't fudge things, we don't take shortcuts. We work hard. That's what Christians do. Now, there is a tension here. I find some Christians actually get so caught up in their work that they work too hard. There's some Christians who need to hear an opposite message. You see, they seem unable to say no to their employer. It's like, they can't say, I don't work on Sundays because my church is more important than my work. I don't work late on Wednesdays because I've got a gospel team. For some reason, some Christians seem incapable of saying, that. I found when I worked in a reasonably high expectation job, unlike this one, that was a joke, <laughs> But uh, I, I found it was best to set parameters early. When I worked in the city, you know, where I saw The Matrix being filmed, you know, that, in that job, I've been going there a bit lately, very, in my first week, I let it be known I'm a Christian. I said, I'll work late on on four nights of the week, but I won't work late on Wednesday night, because that's when I've got my Bible study. And I won't come in on a Sunday, because I teach kids church in the morning, and I've got church in the evening. I found it's best to set the parameters early. I always left a Bible on my desk, so from the very earliest moment. But if you do that, then make sure you live up to it. Make sure you're then known as a hard worker, who honours Jesus. The point is, work to please God not men. The same with if you're a, a uni student, or a school student, or whatever other type of study you do. I think I only discovered this too late as a Christian. I was a bludger at uni, first time, not at more College. Uh, but I, I could get through without doing any work, so I didn't do any work. I should have been working hard and being a model of what it is to be a follower of Christ. But at the same time, there's then Christians, who I see in uni, who work too hard. And I think, I've got to get an HD and if I don't get 95% and I'll miss church to study for my exam. No, 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 no. The right thing is to work hard as if for the Lord but keep it in the right perspective. The point is, work to please God, not men and ironically, that will make your boss like you more, generally, because it makes you a better employee. Second thing, remember you have an inheritance in heaven. Look at verse 23, he says, whatever you do, do it enthusiastically, as something done for the Lord and not for men, then, verse 24, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord, you serve the Lord Christ. It's just a reality, sometimes bosses are unfair. Sometimes you will not get rewarded for your hard work here on earth. That is just a reality, ask any of the staff team at St. George North, you know. (laughs) Sometimes bosses are bad bosses. Sometimes other people get the promotion you deserve. Sometimes, you don't get rewarded for your efforts. Sometimes, we don't get paid what we deserve. That's when we remember, in the end, I have an inheritance in heaven that will never perish, spoil or fade. I have a place in the kingdom of God. So, it just reminds us, even if things aren't fair in this life, that's not the most important thing. See, sometimes we can think, oh, my boss doesn't value me, so I'm not going to work hard. Jesus says, no. I don't care whether your boss values you or not, you work hard. Sometimes we can think, it's my right to take that extra stationery from the stationery cupboard, you know, because they should pay me more anyway. Jesus says, no, that's stealing. You serve the Lord Christ. Lastly, sometimes we are the masters, not the slaves. Sometimes we are responsible for other people. And that's where we need to remember the last thing, which is, remember that we have a heavenly master. So, look with me from chapter 4, verse 1. It says, masters, supply your slaves with what is right and fair, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. Whenever you have a position of authority, whether you're an employer, a parent, or a leader in church, you might be a kid's church leader, that is a position of authority, we need to be righteous and fair in the way we deal with the people under our authority. But it's interesting the motivation he gives there, do you see it? Look again, he says, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. Now, I think that works in two different ways. The first is a positive direction. We know the way our master treats us. We have the greatest example of what it is to be a master in our Heavenly Father and in our Lord Jesus Christ. So, if you want to be a God-honouring leader in whatever sphere you lead, then follow the example of Jesus. Do you know what's really interesting? It's amazing but secular leadership books are starting to get this and if you go, if your work sends you on one of those courses where they pay some guy thousands of dollars to teach you what anyone could teach you, he'll say to you, the characteristics of leaders who people follow are these, humility and genuine concern for the people they lead and they say that is the best way to lead because it inspires loyalty and inspires people to work hard for you. We say, well, that might be true, but we do it because we follow the great example. We follow the most loving Master of them all, the Lord Jesus Christ. But secondly, here, there's also a hint of a warning in that reason. If you read it with a slightly different sort of emphasis, he says, since you know that you too have a Master in heaven. It's the warning of verse 25, look at verse 25. He says for the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done and there is no favoritism you see god sees everything and god is a god of justice and fairness that's why the christian worker doesn't need someone or shouldn't need anyone to be watching them to work hard and do the right thing because they know their heavenly father is watching them and the christian leader doesn't need anyone to be watching them to make them do the right thing because we know our Heavenly Father is always watching us and that should keep us accountable. Well, there are God's instructions for family life, for work, in the end though, it goes way beyond that and covers every aspect of life, doesn't it? Because, come back with me as we close, to the principle back at verse 17, look there, he says, whatever you do, so whether it's playing football, whether it's going to work at Macca's, whether it's being the boss of a multinational company, whether it's being a husband, a wife, a child, whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Amen.